thewellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. The Real Food Real is a fresh and educational podcast dedicated to your health. We get real on current research, debunk food myths, and educate you on how to just eat real food. Your host, Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist, is one of Australia's leading sports nutritionists, passionate about simplifying nutrition and addicted to coconut lattes, smoothies, and sweet potato. If you love the show, then please leave us a review on iTunes. Share the real food real with your friends and continue to spread the real food love. In episode 167 of The Real Food Real, we are joined by Dr. Elise Ballew. Elise is a coach, meditation teacher, and social entrepreneur who trained as a doctor and psychiatrist. She left the hospital wards to pursue a deeper calling to start a global mindfulness movement and founded Mindful in May in 2012. This campaign has taught thousands of people from around the world the skills of mindfulness and has raised $60,000 to bring clean, safe drinking water to developing countries. In today's episode, Elise and I explore meditation, mindfulness, and happiness. You will learn about the nature of the mind. What is negative bias? how to use your mind to create greater happiness and how to thrive instead of just survive. Let's dive in and welcome Elise to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to have you on The Real Food Real. I'd love, because it's your first time on the show, for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a little bit more about your story. Sure. So my background is I actually trained as a medical doctor a long time ago and I ended up specializing in psychiatry and that was because I was really drawn to a field where I knew I was going to learn everything possible about the mind and the brain and I really from a very young age wanted to work in the field of transformation and really helping people to yeah learn tools to live happier and more meaningful lives. So that's what led to that career. Uh, however, like all good stories go, along the way there were a few bumps and, you know, a few bumps and unexpected turns. And I think for me I discovered through the process of that journey that what I was really passionate about was helping people not just survive but thrive. And so psychiatry was teaching me a lot about how to help people who had really fallen into serious despair, uh, often, you know, on the brink of suicide and, and really managing people's risks and just helping them to stay alive and get to the point of okay so that they could then start to build, build their lives up again. But that wasn't enough for me. I just, my calling was more than that. And, and I just was passionate about helping people thrive. So I did start to get a bit disillusioned in, in that career. I just felt like I wasn't quite in the right place, but I didn't know exactly where to go. And I then stumbled into meditation and that was really from a place of my own personal need, just working in trauma and, you know, not really learning a lot of these skills in my actual medical training. So I went and studied meditation and got more and more interested in it, kind of surprised myself because I really wasn't someone that you would imagine would be a typical person to be landing in some silent meditation retreats, um, being someone that's very active and, you know, always on the, on the move and doing. Uh, but it really intrigued me and I found that 
it really was the most valuable education in my 20 years of studying um, to really learn about the nature of the mind and, and how we can actually use our minds uh, to create greater happiness rather than add suffering to our own lives. So that led me to the next sort of the, the reinvention, which was actually leaving my career in psychiatry quite sort of not planned uh, and starting this global mindfulness campaign called Mindfully Mate. That's amazing. So much I want to unpack there with you. And, you know, I've been following your journey in Mindfully Mate for a number of years. So it's amazing to see the growth that you've had and I'd love for you to share more about that. But I think, you know, you make some really good points around I'm sure your training was quite different to the skills that you have now and certainly the space in terms of mental health and um, what we need to do to thrive rather than survive, as you say. Um, Before we talk about Mindful in May, tell us more about um, your meditation experience. Did you do Vipassana? Yeah, so I started off, so I was sort of, I did, I did sort of a training course that was just, you know, a once a week training. It was the mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is the sort of famous eight-week program that John Kabat-Zinn really put together, which a lot of your listeners would probably have done or know about. Uh, but then it was the turning point for me was when I went to a conference and I heard Richie Davidson and Michael Merzenich, who are two of the top neuroscientists, talking about a neuroplasticity, which at that time was a real new thing. This was sort of the early 2000s. And B, Richie Davidson specifically, who's featured in Mindfully May because I tracked him down and I was like, I need to hear more about your research for these listeners and, and participants. And his research completely blew my mind. As a doctor, listening to what he had discovered through people who were practicing regular meditation, again, now this is almost in the mainstream. Uh, but at that time, I was just completely astounded and I thought yeah this I need to know more about this and so I then dived into silent retreats and yeah went on on a number of Vipassana retreats and I guess yeah I write about this in the beginning of my book I think for anyone that's been on a long sort of silent meditation retreat you can't walk away from that experience sort of unchanged it's quite a deep thing to do and for me personally I think just tasting a different quality of being and a different mind state that I had never experienced before, which was one whereby the, yeah, the inner chatter sort of settled down and there was just, I I guess before going on that retreat, there was a sense of restlessness in my life. Like I just, I really sensed that I wasn't very good at just being still and I had an intuition that there was something very important that I needed to learn and, and so, yeah, that, that's really what happened for me. I write in the book something like this funny transformation with after sort of four or five days of practicing, I'd gone from an ambitious latte-drinking city dweller to a bird-watching, you know, slow-walking, uh, meditation, nature-loving kind of person. So, yeah, it was, it was quite a profound experience that definitely inspired a lot more investigation down that line. Yeah, awesome. And I guess, as you say, like initially you weren't the typical meditator because you probably didn't, you know, you weren't aware of the benefits. And it can be quite stereotypical, I guess, in terms of, you know, maybe more conventionally who was first meditating and going to the silent retreats and so on. Um, But you're right, it has become a much more popular conversation, which 
is so amazing. But I've, I'm sure you'll agree we've still got a long way to go in terms of encouraging everyone to appreciate that the brain can change itself and, and that neuroplasticity, as you say, is is yeah, being highly studied as a really significant part of controlling your overall health and longevity. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think what we're really understanding now and what's becoming more just, you know, a given is that there are really things that we can do that sort of training, just like, you know, obviously you're very into sort of physical, the marathons and all of this kind of stuff, just like that with the brain, like we can really take responsibility and and actively practice things that are going to orientate our mind and our brain in ways that just really amplify our happiness. And, you know, I think that's a really big, I think that's a big deal. And I, I found in my own life, it's been really, really profound. Like, you know, mindfulness is really a training about how you use your attention. And people don't realize like, how profound the way we use our attention creates our reality. So if you're not aware of what you're paying attention to, then you're often your mind has a negativity bias and it's often noticing the negatives. And, you know, that's been an evolutionary, an evolutionarily kind of a, a trained thing for us that we have to be constantly aware of threats in our environment. So the brain is wired to notice that. So we have to actively sort of recalibrate and, neutralize that tendency of the brain and so when you're practicing mindfulness you're much more aware of what you're paying attention to and therefore you have a greater capacity to actively choose where you're putting your attention you know are you resting your attention on all the worries and all the things that you don't have or are you focusing on gratitude what you do have this is all part of mindfulness training yeah that's amazing and um you know, I'm sure along the way you've been exposed to so many of the myths that come up with meditation. I wanted to circle back to what you said about the mental chatter that you experienced yourself and recognised changing with your mindfulness practice. Um, tell me how many people think that it's only them that has the monkey mind or the mental chatter? Yeah, I mean, I teach... I teach many different workshops like online and offline and that is definitely, I think that's the biggest obstacle for people really moving forward with their practice that they just think they're pathetic at it. They just think my mind is crazy. Everyone else can meditate. I can't stop my thoughts or I just, you know, and it's really demoralizing for people when they don't realize that that's actually not what we're trying to do with, with meditation. We're not, trying to stop our thoughts. And just to be clear, when I was talking about my experience in, in the silent retreat, it's not that thoughts stop and, and we're not trying to stop thoughts. It's just that the mind is really a mirror of the external environment. So when we're hyper-stimulated and, you know, we're, we're racing around and there's agitation in our external world, that's going to be mirrored and, and reflected in the state of our mind. Our mind internally gets agitated and, and hyper-aroused and hyper-stimulated. And so when we go on something like a meditation retreat or we commit to putting, you know, 20, 10, 20 minutes of meditation into the day, it gives our mind an opportunity to settle. It's not about stopping the thoughts, but it's just that the hectic agitation of the mind calms down. Sort of like I love the metaphor of the snow globe, like those shaky things. that you could, It really is like that. Like when you're running around, the snow is everywhere, and then you just stop and you be still and you focus on the breath, and those snowflakes kind of settle and there's greater clarity. 
Yeah, that's a beautiful analogy. And I also love that you mentioned training the mind like we do the body. I think that's a beautiful concept because we've lost sight of that significance. You know, we, we look after the food that we eat and we prioritize our exercise, but we expect the mind just to sort itself out. I feel that's the way it's gone. So, you know, especially for the athletes that are tuning in, like they can really think about how much time they dedicate to their training, or even if it is just like a a general exercise schedule, that's a really great perspective to show you what time investment your mind requires as well. Absolutely. And I think the thing about the mind is, and what I've seen and noticed is that people often come to med or in the past, I think people have often come to meditation when they've reached crisis point, you know? So it's like you only start to look at the mind when you're in the pit of anxiety or depression. And it's like the mind is yelling out to you and saying, hello, like come and attend to me because you've been ignoring me for way too long or you've been stuck in these mental habits of perfectionism, self-criticism, you know, whatever anyone's particular style is. And you can get away with that for many, many years and then suddenly it just all accumulates and it manifests as depression or anxiety. And so, so, so that's where a lot of people have come to that arrive in meditation. They're looking for something to help them. But I think what's great is that now it's almost more becoming a mental health prevention movement where we're realizing that, you know, just like brushing our teeth, it's not like we don't all wait now to get cavities to start brushing our teeth. Like we brush the teeth to avoid the cavities. And I think that, you know, from a perspective of mental health, we're really understanding that some of these practices are just a non-negotiable if we're going to be resilient and, you know, just manage the demands of our time. Yeah, it's like the dream prescription of the future. You know, we've got obviously air, water, r- real food and the breath, you know, <laughs> rather yeah. than the conventional prescription that maybe you saw back in your training days. Yeah, 100%. And, look, I, I, I like to be really clear because, you know, some people have sort of criticised me about being this mindfulness evangelist and, you know, I, I really want to make it clear that I'm not sort of an anti-psychiatry kind of person. Like I think that what I learned in my training and, you know, the whole world of medication is absolutely crucial and life-saving for people, you know. It's not about one or the other, but it's just that I think what what – what bugged me a lot was that in our society, a lot of prescriptions are being written for people that, you know, there, there might've been another way and it might've been another way that they would have preferred, but they were never really given the option. So, um, you know, and the, and the research around mindfulness, I mean, there's over a thousand studies a year coming out, but you know, there was really strong research that showed that over a two month mindfulness program, people that had multiple episodes of depression were having less relapses that was equivalent to as if they were on antidepressants. So in other words, you know, these training programs were helping people suffering from relapsing depression to to not fall back into depression and, and it was as effective as medication. So I just think that people need to know what the options are for them. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, it's not about one or the other, um, but it's, it's obviously, I think, the acknowledgement that it is in our control. So we can have those behaviours 
um, or implement new behaviours to transform that negative bias, as you say. It's been set up from, you know, gosh knows decades of probably having to, you know, fear threats in the wild and, and have periods of famine and so on and so forth, which obviously aren't our current threats, but we've got so many more modern day things that we're exposed to every waking second. Exactly. Yeah, cool. So I'd love to hear more about Mindful in May. So just for any listeners that might not have come across Mindful in May, tell us um, obviously what it's about and I'd love you to share um, what you're what you're doing and how you're giving back as well. Sure, sure. So look, I, I designed Mindful in May to really provide busy people with an accessible science-based mindfulness training program that invites them to get on board. It's, it runs each May. So it's an annual program. It's run entirely online. And essentially I gather the world's leading experts in the field, both the mindfulness meditation experts and the neuroscientists. And I bring those two pieces together. Um, and people basically get an A to Z roadmap. So they get daily emails when they register, they get links to guided meditations, various guided meditations, and pretty much three to four video interviews that are about 45 minutes to an hour long with some of these incredible people. So ranging from the likes of, you know, Sharon Zaltzberg, who's one of the leading American meditation teachers in loving kindness, Joseph Goldstein, Richie Davidson, one of the neuroscientists I just alluded to. So really an incredibly rich program. And the idea is the social impact side of it is that we all know that it's really hard to create habits. And so sometimes I've found that the two keys are doing something in community has this amplifying effect to really help keep you motivated. And the second piece is just like if you do a marathon, some people get sponsored to dedicate that effort and that challenge to something bigger than themselves. I've sort of turned Mindful May into this almost like a marathon for your mind. So you're signing up to something that's pretty challenging, you know, to do 10 minutes of meditation. It sounds easy, but for most of us, that's really a big commitment. And so you're invited to register. And then if you'd like, you basically create a fundraising page and you reach out to your friends, family or work colleagues. We have lots of different corporates that get on, get involved and basically get sponsored to commit to the 10 minutes a day. Now, people write in and they say, oh, what if I can't do it and, you know, I get sponsored and then I miss a day. You know, the idea is you just give it your best go. You know, if you miss a day, you get back on track. You're not going to go down in, you know, it, it's fine. But the the spirit of it is just to do something for yourself and do something good for the world. So the tagline we use is create a clear mind for you and clean water for others because we're raising funds to address the global water crisis. So beautiful. I think that's an amazing concept and obviously a great social cause because, you know, it's there's profound levels of poverty, obviously, and there's, you know, many people that don't have access to safe drinking water. So it's so amazing. Yeah, uh, one, in, one in ten. It's one, it's one in 10 people on the planet, which is pretty extraordinary. It's, it's like such a basic thing. And uh, I think that, you know, speaking of sort of happiness and well-being, I think it's, it's a really positive thing to kind of get out of your own head and, and turn your attention outwards and, and really feel that you're making a difference in the world. And I've found that that's a crucial piece that I think really helps people stick with the practice. Yeah, pretty life-changing. So How did you come up with the 10 minutes per day and what does research tell us around ideal durations to get the benefits of meditation and mindfulness? So thanks for the question. So a lot of the research that I had come across prior to Mindful in May was looking at 
you know, all the brain changing research. It was all about sort of programs that were basically 30 to 40 minutes a day of meditation. And I had done these programs, I had led these programs, and a concern that I had was that this kind of program was potentially excluding people that just couldn't do that. Like it was just too much. And it was also potentially setting people up to fail because you know, you start to sign up for, okay, I'm going to meditate 30 minutes a day and then you you can't do it and then you kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater. So the idea of the 10 minutes is like everyone can find 10 minutes a day. Like there's no excuses. Like so, so we can all find 10 minutes a day. So it was about making it as accessible as possible. And also my idea is that getting people on board for 10 minutes a day if they do it for 10 minutes over one month, they will feel the benefits. And then it's like a natural progression to start doing more of it rather than setting yourself up for something that's just too too difficult to achieve. So, and then the, the point about, you know, how long do we need to do to experience the benefits? I actually did some research of my own a couple of years ago on the program to, to answer exactly that question. So I have like tens of thousands of people around the world doing mindfully May each year. So it was a perfect opportunity to study you know, the outcomes. So in this study, we had 200 people that signed up um, and we measured them via surveys before the program and after the program. And we found that there were significant benefits for these people for just committing to 10 minutes over a month. So benefits ranging from they were better able to perceive their stress levels internally and respond to them. So therefore, stress management was increased. Um, A reduction in negative emotions and an increase in positive emotions they described greater self-compassion, so that just kindness to oneself, which is an essential part of mindfulness training. And then finally, we also discovered that actually the more meditation you were doing a day, the stronger the benefits were all round. So 10 minutes is enough to give you benefits, but the more you do, the better. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, because especially when you're starting out, people... um, you know, again, they haven't yet formed that behaviour of it being a subconscious thing like the brushing of the teeth. And, and the teeth brushing is a good example of something that we do without thinking. I feel like it's obviously ingrained in our DNA from a lifelong of practice. Um, so looking at a behaviour like that can be quite powerful to think about any new behaviour, but particularly mindfulness or meditation for someone that's a bit resistant or not across the line yet in terms of the benefits just that regularity so that month can be a beautiful um, kickstart or I guess jumping board for integrating it into your daily life a hundred percent you know I was thinking just now as you were speaking I've got a two and a half year old daughter and at the moment I'm teaching her how to brush her teeth right so if you think about that from two we're training kids to develop the habit of brushing teeth now, I'm also trying to teach her a bit of meditation. Like, obviously, for a two-year-old, you got to, like, adapt it. But I'm just, I'm just dropping in hints about the breath. Like, and when she has a tantrum, it's like, okay, take a calm breath, you know. So I'm not, like, making a sit for five minutes. But I'm, I'm introducing this concept. And, if you, you know, and if, if we did this for children, which is happening now, then you can imagine the next generation, like, in 20, 30 years, like, that's going to be an ingrained habit, which is really remarkable. Oh, it is. Like, it's so amazing to see it being taught at such a young age now, which it absolutely should be, but obviously wasn't done in my time and I don't suppose Not you guys in your training, let alone, you know, when you were younger. Um, but, yeah, I think it's going to be so fascinating to watch those generations and how 
um, different they are in terms of things like their resilience, but yeah, what we can change from that mental health, the anxiety and depression that you've mentioned. Yeah, which is really like epidemic proportions now. Mm, Tragically, isn't it? Yeah. I I wanted to add, if you don't mind, because I I think what I get really, you know, what excited me and what really catalyzed my leap fully into this was the science. And I think, you know, I know many of your listeners are well aware of the science, but just for a few of them that might not be, like a couple of the highlight pieces of research, I mean, that I'd love to share if that's okay, uh, is, yeah, so one of the pieces of research which I found just incredibly mind-blowing was by Richie Davidson. It was done a couple of years ago and it was really in the field of epigenetics and how we can change our genes by the behaviours and the lifestyle choices we make. And so he discovered that one day of meditation practice was enough to actually change the genetic expression in the body around inflammatory markers, inflammatory proteins in the body. And we know that inflammation is a really significant risk factor for various chronic illnesses. And so to think that just there was a measurable effect there just from one full day of meditation. Now, obviously, a lot of people are not going to, you know, necessarily be meditating a full day. But to know that that's possible is just really inspiring. And and really, we're just at the tip of the iceberg of understanding this. Yeah, that is so good to hear, especially with yeah, I guess thinking beyond those day-to-day benefits, obviously it's all about longevity at the end of the day and, and managing inflammation is number one. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so, it's, I mean, it's pretty fascinating that this training that is purely mental training is actually having a profound impact on your physical body. I mean, that's where the whole mind-body connection piece comes in. Yeah, and obviously for a long time we've looked at the human as being like, quite separate I feel whereas now we're obviously learning about the connection between the mind and the body and the vagus nerve with the gut and and the brain and we're finally taking this holistic view which is amazing yeah it is really exciting you know many of my meditation teachers have often referred to it as the mind body they don't call it the mind and the body and I love that it's like the mind body you know it's like there's that yeah coming together of the two pieces and I think that's one thing when I studied medicine that really, I just, it just didn't make sense to me because I was doing all this reading on the side, which was sort of less mainstream, but I just was, it doesn't make sense that we're talking about this kidney and that liver and, you know, then this mind. And as you say, the gut, we know so much more now about how it's all integrated and interconnected. Yeah. And then we can look obviously historically um, at the yoga and the obviously yeah. the Ayurveda and they've been talking about mind body for centuries and you know we're finally catching up in the Western world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Fascinating. Cool. That's really good. So obviously Mindful in May, um, an annual program and we'll put um more information in the show notes, but just let us know the URL for those that want to head there straight away. Yeah, it's mindfullymay.org. Amazing. Thank you. And they have to register before before May the 1st. It's It all starts on May the 1st. Yeah, amazing. That's so exciting. We'll get everyone to jump on board and take part. Um, but I'd also love to hear about your new book. I know it's been recently released, The Happiness Plan. I've seen it all over social media. Um, I'm dying <laughs> to get my hands on a copy. But um, tell us more about The Happiness Plan. 
Yeah, so the happiness plan really came from the fact that I was running Mindful in May and people kept saying, why Mindful in May? Why just May? Like, what about the rest of the year? And what if I miss Mindful in May? And so I guess through the outcomes that I was seeing in Mindful in May, it was just a natural thing to sort of create a manual or a guide that people could access outside of May, uh, any month of the year. So the happiness plan is really, it's a one month transformative mindfulness guide to less stress and improved well-being, And people can take themselves through that. And so it is very connected to Mindful in May. I incorporate a lot of the learnings um, from various experts that I've interviewed. And there really is this sort of week by week training that you can take yourself through. Um, and it also actually gives people access to some of the guided meditations that I offer. So they can, once they buy the book, they can sort of go to the website and get, get the meditations to use week by week. Uh, and then there's also, um, there's sort of informal integrated mindfulness practices for every day that really take like less than three minutes. So it's really designed for, again, like time poor people. It's a guilt-free mindfulness handbook. Uh, and it's really about helping people to understand how to use their minds to, to develop greater happiness, less suffering. And that's really what, you know, mindfulness came from its roots are 2,500 years old through contemplative Buddhism. And, and really the Buddha was all about like, let's reduce suffering in the world. And that's, that's really what I'm on a mission to do as well. So good. And obviously attachment is suffering and we can talk about in the context of the thoughts that we obviously want to practice non-attachment to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think another thing about the book, I found that I found a really powerful hook for people is the science. Like, because when they learn the science, they, they, it's just, it's, it's there and, and, and it's so compelling. And so I've really tried to pull all the latest science together around mindfulness and how it transforms the brain and the body and the mind uh, and really give that to people in a way that's really easy to read and then inspires them to actually start doing the practice. Because obviously if you're not actually doing the practice, you're not going to get the benefits. Yeah. I think that's a really important part because as you know, with those myths and misconceptions, you know, it can be seen as a bit woo woo or that you've got to be wearing like yoga gear to be meditating or too mindful. So then we can present science, especially to people that, you know, are that way orientated with their learning or the way they, um, yeah, the way their brain works, like it can really allow them to acknowledge its significance. And you can't deny it, right? As you said, there's, um, you know, over a thousand studies annually being um, published and, yeah, it's crystal clear as to the benefits. So amazing that you've been able to compile that all together in one handbook. Yeah, done my best. We'll see. But, uh, yeah, and the other thing is that one of the big um, emphasis as I put in the book and all my teaching is this thing about self-compassion. And I think that another thing that really gets in the way of people taking this up is black and white thinking. Like, you know, they try it and then they miss a day or they fall off track a few days and they think, oh, I'm terrible. I can't do anything. I can't stick to anything. So there's a really strong message there of just being kind to yourself. You're human like everyone else. We're all imperfect. We all fall off track. Let's be real about it and just, you know, start again tomorrow you know, any moment is an opportunity to just begin again. And, and for me, that's been really liberating because I feel like, you know, there have been times in my life, of course, where things get really stressful and I do fall off track. But the thing is, because I know how beneficial and I've experienced this 
myself, like to know that this practice is so supportive, I always come back to it. It's like a non-negotiable, it's a deeply embedded part of my life, just like brushing my teeth. Mm. Yeah, so amazing. Oh, it's fascinating. I can't wait for everyone to get their hands on a copy of the happiness plan. Obviously that means they don't have to wait till May, although it'd be great to do it as a community when May does roll around this year. Um, but wonderful that it's a, it's a month long program to help really integrate that behavior. And I'm sure you can pick it up many, many, many times. Absolutely. Lovely. So I'd love um, to give you the space to add anything else that you'd like to share, but then tell us how we can find out more and get a copy of the happiness plan. So, well, let me just think about this. <laughs> I, think, I think I'd really, I'd love to leave your listeners with the message that I think a key component of mindfulness is, is about like familiarising yourself with your own mind and then learning the skills to actually bring that into your life that really are so transformative. And I think when you really take a moment to think about it, what is more valuable than your own mind? Like as, a, as someone's training in psychiatry, I watched people literally lose their minds and it takes away your entire reality. So I think we really owe it to ourselves to invest in training our minds to reach their fullest potential so that we can really experience what flourishing feels like in life. And I feel that mindfulness is the vehicle to do that. So, and, and it doesn't have to take so long each day. I really invite your listeners to commit to one minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, and try and just commit to that for a month and notice what happens. Set yourself up as an experiment and see for yourself. And in terms of where they can get the happiness plan, it's available in all bookstores around Australia and also on online, Amazon, Kindle, Book Depository. All the, all the common places. Easy to grab. That's amazing. But I love that challenge, guys. So it's at least one minute a day every day, but I'm sure we can create a little bit uh, more space to add on as you see fit. I've yeah. really enjoyed our conversation today. And as I said, I can't wait to dive into the happiness plan. Um, thanks for your time and for sharing your knowledge. And it was great to have Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks, Elise. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst The Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of The Wellness Couch podcasts.